Hello, and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 56. On this episode, my guest is Jeff Flora. I've known Jeff for quite a while. He's the former CEO of the Southwestern Association, and I actually worked for Jeff for a little while. Oh, it's been 10 years ago now or more that I worked with Jeff. So, Jeff, it's an honor to have you on my podcast. Yeah, Casey, good to be with you. And, uh, you know, when you were talking about how, how long ago we worked together, uh, you know, I've lost all track of time, but I suppose it was about 10 years ago. Yeah, so it's been a little bit. But um, you have a pretty pretty good background based in the uh, equipment association uh, business. So give me a little background on yourself and, and, and what you've done here with your with your career. Sure. Uh, well, uh, I went to work for the, at that time, it was called the Western Association, Western Retail Implement Hardware Association in 1976 and uh, started out in the accounting department uh, at the association. In nineteen uh, in the early 80s, actually, um, officially 1983, but earlier than that, my predecessor had illness, and, and uh, so I took over the management of the association, actually, in, in 81, 82. But officially, in 1983, I became the CEO of the Western Retail Implement Hardware Dealers Association. And we At that time, we represented equipment dealers, farm and construction, and outdoor power dealers in Kansas and Missouri actually Western Missouri, and uh, when I retired in 2014, we'd expanded our territory to include all of Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, and, uh, and Oklahoma. So uh, uh, the time I retired or was getting ready to retire from the association, we had felt strongly that um, we needed to do a better job at the association in uh, helping dealers and remaining uh, in close contact and, and having productive dialogues with manufacturers. And we thought that one way that that could happen would be to uh, reduce the number of associations and expand our reach. And so uh, the Canada West Association, actually headquartered in, in Calgary and representing the Western provinces in Canada, John Schmeiser, is the uh, was the executive director of the Canada West Association. We entered into discussions, our board of directors and the Canada West Association, and we actually merged the two organizations to once again form the uh, Western Equipment Dealers Association. So, I, as I said earlier, I retired in uh, nineteen uh, or I'm sorry, sorry, 2014. I still do some work for the association and I'm still involved with a couple of the associations that the Western organization manages, and I'm on a couple of board of directors, uh, serve on some boards for uh, for equipment dealers. So I'm still still got my finger a little bit in the industry and, of course, stay in, stay in touch with what's going on. So as part of the, of the various equipment uh, associations that, that you've been a part of, legislation has always been a big part of that, has it not? It has. Casey, as you know, when you were at the association, that's something that we were pretty active in in, in, in Kansas City, where our headquarters were. And uh, again, when we represented dealers in the five states that we operated in, again, Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, we were active in all those states in the state legislature. And not as much probably as I would have liked to have seen us be active in New Mexico, we just didn't have the dealer population there. But in the other four states, very, very active. Uh, when I took over management association, like I said, in the early 1980s, that was one of the things that we had been not very active in. And our board of directors instructed me that we needed to get more engaged and involved. And uh, I think our attitude at the association always was to work closely 
with the major manufacturers and the short line manufacturers to let them know what our concerns were regarding the relationship we had with them, what our dealers had with the manufacturers. And, and we tried to keep a, a good dialogue open with the, with the manufacturers about legislation that would impact our dealers and, and the manufacturers. And I think it, it worked pretty well. Yeah. So when you took over the association in the early eighties, I mean, that had to have been, that had to have been a pretty trying time for, for not only you, but the association as well with the, with the impact the economy had at the time. Yeah, it was, it were different times for sure. <laughs> you know, you, when I think back on, uh, on those years when the interest rates were 20%, um, yeah, there were tough times. A lot of dealers were, went out of business and struggling, uh, yeah, you know, it's almost like you try to forget those days. And, and I think one of the you know, one of the challenges with the, any business, and particularly it, it seems like in the farm equipment business, from a dealer perspective, is um, you know that you know you're going to have ups and downs, and and uh, there can be good times, and and then there are going to be some bad times. And obviously, um, crop prices and weather, and you know, there's a lot of factors that that challenge. Uh, especially in agriculture, uh, challenge the producers and the dealers. And uh, a lot of people, I think, have a tendency to want to forget about the bad times, but obviously you can learn from those, and I think a lot of people have over the years. Yeah. I think there's, about 37 states now that are going to introduce a right-to-repair bill. So you, you're pretty versed in this, so kind of give a rundown of, of what you're seeing happen and, and, and kind of give me your overall synopsis of, of how the right-to-repair bills are going to impact dealerships and, and manufacturers yeah i mean it's i understand uh, and i've had quite a few conversations about this issue with dealers and with some of my former colleagues in the association business and certainly with some of the manufacturer uh, representatives and i understand from the producer and, and the farmer standpoint um you know why they they want access to uh, to be able to work on their own equipment i think First of all, the one thing I would say is is that we, you know, we, the associations and the dealer organizations and the manufacturers, I think, and I'm not speaking for them, but just based on what I'm hearing, I think that there is a belief that the uh, the producer should have the right to uh, repair equipment, but not the right to modify equipment. And um, so I understand that AEM, the Association of Equipment Manufacturers, along with the dealer organizations, dealer associations are are working on and it, it's got a website up it's called r2rsolutions.org and um, they're working with um, producers on legislation that have, has been introduced to inform um, the producers and people who are promoting the right to uh, repair laws about some of the concerns that uh, the manufacturers and the dealers have with these laws as they're currently being proposed would uh, become law. Um, and, and I think there's three major issues that dealers and manufacturers are concerned about. And I would certainly be in this camp if I was still the CEO at our association. And those are, you know, safety. Um, if, and again, what, we're, what, what the concern is, is allowing customers to have access to the source codes. Uh, and again, we're not saying that the, the customers shouldn't have the right to repair their equipment and have access to manuals and that sort of thing. But we're, what the real concern is, is access to source codes that would allow users uh, to override safety features. And also, there are, as you know, there are a lot of uh, 
you know, compliance and requirements on the part of farm equipment dealers and manufacturers about environmental and emission standards. And we think that the concern there is that, you know, if users had access to the codes, they could jeopardize um, the standards that are put into place on all the all the equipment. And then finally, the, the last piece is uh, manufacturers and dealers have invested considerable resources in the technology granting access to the source codes and their you know, their concern the concern is is that manufacturers are, are concerned about the intellectual property and and it would stifle innovation if anyone had access to that so i know it's a it's a you know touchy subject with with some users that that want access um to the to the machines but when you start modifying and, and the source codes is really the thing about the modifications and having access to those source codes and what the liability is down the road if those machines were to be modified and then they're traded in later. Um, you know, just got a whole series of concerns that I think that manufacturers and dealers have regarding these laws. That's where my concern lies too. It's not so much, I'm, I'm all for the right to repair. You know, we have diagnostic tools that, that any producer can come pick up and, and they can plug into their machine and they can read the codes and they'll tell them what well, you know what the code is and it'll tell them you can go look that up and see what that takes to fix that stuff but where i'm as a as a guy that deals with used equipment my issue is when guys start jacking with horsepower ratings or you know all the different settings that are inside the computer shutting off the emissions you know so they don't have to use def anymore and those kind of things unless you know unless we start telling guys you know hey this was turned up 100 horsepower you know, and it's not and it's not necessarily rated to do that. You know, all John Deere engines have a or eight R's have a have a nine liter engine, but not all nine liter engines are created equally. You know, there's different components inside those things that that require different horsepower ratings. And when you start turning that stuff up, you you put pressure on things that you shouldn't have to put pressure on. And that's where my overwhelming concern comes in when you start looking at at the overall um, down the road view of used equipment. Yeah, absolutely, Keith. I mean, I totally agree with you. I mean, you're living it every day, and I'm, you know, I'm I have always been uh, separated from actually what's going on in the dealerships. But when I talk to manufacturers and dealers about this issue, that's exactly the concern is, and and particularly in your position with dealing with used equipment, um, if you don't know what's happened to that piece of equipment when you trade in you know, when it's traded in, and you've got it now to to resell, uh, you can just imagine if somebody has messed with those codes and changed things and no longer is that piece of machinery um, compliant from emission standards and those kinds of things, um, the liability for the dealer is could be pretty significant. And then you've got the safety issues. I think, you know, safety and, and emission environmental are the two issues that would concern me the most. Um, and, and, and again, um, you know, there's a, I'm sure there are a lot of very technically savvy um, users out there, but when you start messing with those codes and increasing horsepower and doing those kinds of things, it changes the whole way that that machine was intended to be um, utilized. Um, so that's I think that's the concern that everybody has, and and certainly there is that um, that the uh, intellectual property issue is is an issue, but I think the safety and and uh, environmental issues are the most are the biggest concerns that I would have, and I and I think 
uh, I talked to a friend of mine who manages one of the Midwest associations recently, and he just met with uh, a group of, of farmers that were pushing for the right to repair law in their state. And he felt like there was some there was some progress made when they understand and listen to where the manufacturers and the dealers are coming from on this side of the uh, of the debate. Uh, now you know when, and I think one other important thing, the 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 users have access. They they will have access, and they have access to manuals and and uh, diagnostic tools and those kinds of things. They have to pay for them. I mean, it doesn't come that doesn't come uh, without a cost. But that 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 will be available and is available in many instances now. That I think that's the thing that gets left out of the conversation. When they hear that, they hear, you know, oh, we're not going to let you guys work on anything anymore because it's so technologically advanced now that you have to have a computer to plug into it and yada, yada, yada. We're locking it down and we can't, you know, you can't fix anything in your shop anymore. That That's not true. That That is not true at all. I mean, you can you can check code. You can do everything else. John Deere sells a, a program that it's the same program that's out there on every technician's laptop. The only difference is that they don't have the part on there where you can change EC, ECMs and, and up, you know, change the specs and stuff inside of the computer. But, it, but other than that, it's the exact same thing. So I would really encourage people to understand that the difference between right to repair and right to alter. And like I said, myself, and I will speak for most of the equipment dealerships that I talk to every day are a hundred percent, a hundred percent on the side of, right to repair it's the right to alter part that where the gray area starts to come in yeah exactly i think again as i said earlier uh, we strongly believe as dealer organizations and manufacturers that the, the user or the consumer the farmer has a right to repair they do not have the right to modify and i think as long as everybody kind of understands that and mm-hmm. thinks about that you know from the different ways that uh, that equipment can be modified um, they'd understand. They'd understand why we're uh, we. You know, and again, these laws you just feel like they're too far-reaching. Um, I would also encourage everybody that's that's listening to go on the website that uh, AEM and the dealer organizations have put together. Again, it's r2rsolutions.org, and there's some pretty good information there. There's a video, and it it spells out just exactly what you and I've just been talking about. So, with your conversations that you've had with other association uh, leaders and dealership personnel and those kind of things. What What is the overall reaction to uh, the political environment that we're in now? Well, I think, you know, I'm not sure it's any different than anybody, you know, than any um, person that's paying attention to what's going on in our country right now. I think there's enthusiasm for a lot of um, what we're seeing that more of a pro business um attitude i think on the part of our federal government um and certainly the tax you know the tax law change that recently passed uh is an indication is a good indication and you know that's good for i think for our dealers and for agricultural in general i think there's also concern you know I, almost every day i see something in the news about uh, the administration wanting to you know reduce uh, crop insurance payments and, you know, all of the talk about the trade agreements and terminating relationships with some of our trading partners, those are obviously of concern. Um, so, you know, and again, it's, it's, uh, there's, there's good, there's a lot of good things that are going on and, 
and um, and and then on the other hand, there are things that uh, maybe aren't so good for agriculture. At least it doesn't look that way on the surface. I, I do think though that most people um, feel um, more energized and um, optimistic about the outlook, at least for the next three years. Um, and there is certainly a frustration. Again, I don't think this is limited to people in the farm equipment business or in agriculture, but there is a, you know, there's a concern about um, will anything ever get done, really get done on a lot of these issues. Um, but, but, but for the most part, I think there's probably more optimism than there is pessimism about uh, where we're headed, at least for the next three years. Um, and then, you know, who knows? These elections coming up in 2018, this all will be interesting, I think, for, uh, for our country. But uh, I think there's, you know, from my standpoint, I think there's probably more good than there is. There's more positives than there are negatives right now. And that that's probably uh, the same way I would summarize it, too. There's as many people as I talk to every day. Um, it really depends on what day you catch them and how, how they feel about how things are going. Um, depends on yeah. what the, it really depends on what the latest tweet is and, and on their opinion of of uh, what's going on in that country. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. Exactly right. Dealerships keep getting bigger, um, especially with the with the current economy that we're in. Uh, a lot of older generations are deciding to either merge or uh, let their dealerships be acquired and it seems like the dealership groups are getting bigger and bigger whether it's whoever it is, what color you may be. So, what are you hearing on your end and and you know, what do you see as far as the future of of consolidation goes. Well, I, it's interesting, Casey. I, you know, um, we we started having conversations at our association back in the early '90s, and uh, when um, RDO um, went public, um, there was a lot of there was a lot of conversation about that in the ni- 1990s about dealers thinking about you know ramping up, acquiring more locations, and getting to a uh, level where they could go, go public, and so we actually we actually did some seminars throughout our territory. And again, back then we were just covering Kansas and represented the dealers in Kansas and Western Missouri. But there was a lot of you know a lot of talk about that. And then as um, as the consolidation really ramped up, and again, as you said, you had a lot of uh, the guys that were on our board of directors and and were our dealers when I was at the association starting to retire if they didn't have uh, family in the business or people to pass the business on to or sell the business to um, they started looking for op- other options and and consolidation took off you happened at a pretty rapid pace um, and he, as you know when you worked the association we we had and still have an accounting department that's part of the uh, western equipment dealers association and one of the things that um, that organization, that part of our organization has been pretty involved in is doing um, valuations of businesses generally for the purpose of um, consolidations and dealer selling. I thought, I really thought that um, it, I was surprised at the level of consolidation and how rapidly that, that took off. And then, you know, the 2000, when the economy slowed, the ag economy slowed down significantly, you know, 2000. 15, 16, 17, it, it tailed off a little bit, but man, is it back again, full, full, full yeah. bore. It's, uh, it, it's amazing to me 
I, I'm, I guess I would say, uh, and again, some of that is still being driven by, you know, folks retiring and getting to retirement age. But, um, uh, you know, I think there's other factors involved. Obviously, uh, one of the things that I strongly believed in for years is that agriculture and the farm equipment business is, is uh, I think, going to be good for a long, long time because the world population is getting bigger. Um, it's not going to, at least in the foreseeable future, I don't see it declining. Uh, people are going to want, in the world, are going to want good food they're going to want the food that we've been lucky to have in the united states um in other parts of the world where they don't have that and so that's going to be continuing to grow and we know how to we know how to do it right in the united states uh, there's obviously issues but we, we're pretty good at growing food and, and doing what we need to do to feed the world so to speak so i think it's um i think a lot of people are starting to see that who have money and want to invest in in businesses, I think farm equipment dealerships and and uh, being engaged in agriculture is obviously attractive to people who are looking for an investment. I, on the negative, I don't know that this is a negative necessarily. That is a surprise to me is how in, how the uh, manufacturers have allowed and and then frankly, I think it appears as though they're encouraging these dealerships to get as large as they are. Um, that surprises me um, because that was certainly not the case years ago when uh, when the mergers and consolidations first took off. There was a concern on the part of manufacturers, at least expressed to us at the association, uh, about dealers becoming too large and getting so large that um, the manufacturers, for lack of a better term, couldn't control how those dealers operate and, and that sort of thing. And uh, it kind of looks to me like maybe that that uh, that chicken's left the coop. Um, man, some of these dealerships, you know, with 50 location plus, mm-hmm. um, they're pretty. They've got, I would think, they've got an awful lot of power. And if something were to go wrong, and I don't know what that might be, but when you've got the a dealer organization that's got that many locations, and something were to go south, it just uh, I don't know how. I don't know how you'd recover from that as a manufacturer. Uh, It seems to me that the manufacturer would either have to find somebody to step in or the manufacturer would have to step in to to take, you know, take control of that situation. But that that is a surprise to me. Remember now I'm retired and um, I'm thinking maybe (laughs) 20 years ago about how things were and, um, but it but it is surprising to me. And, and I don't see it slowing down. Uh, I continue. I was, this week, um, the Western Association had their mm-hmm. one of their board meetings um, here in Phoenix, where I live, and so I was talking <clears> to a couple of the guys here. I, I don't see it slowing down. I think that dealerships are going to continue to get larger, and dealers are going to be, you know, those dealers who and people who are investing, whether they're venture capitalists or people with with money who don't really have any history in agriculture, seem to be. There's still those people that are coming out of the woodwork that seem to be interested in owning dealerships and be involved in the industry. So I think it's, I think it's going to be interesting and more interesting and there's going to be more activity over the next um, few months and years as the industry is rapidly changing. Yeah. Dealerships have gotten to the size now that their, their neighboring dealer group is, you know, you're talking half a billion dollar companies now. Like you said, there's a lot of money coming in into this, uh, into this business more than I've seen in the past. So 
are you seeing more consolidation via acquisition or merger? Acquisitions. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, the merger business, I think, is, I mean, there's still mergers going on, but I think it's more, what I'm seeing is more acquisitions. I think some of the, you know, one of the policies out of all that is that it appears as though most of the acquisitions that I'm familiar with and have seen take place, the people who are in those dealerships, and I'm talking, you know, employees, but I'm also talking mid-level managers and managers. For the most part, those people are a part of the of the package uh, when the when the dealerships acquired. In other words, a lot of the you know brain trust and those dealership organizations remain in place. So that that's a positive, I think, for the for the farmers and the in the consumers that are doing business with those dealerships is you don't want to lose what what you don't want to see happen is obviously that you lose the connection between the, the personnel and the dealerships and their customers and the knowledge that those that, that personnel has. So that that's a positive. And I would think on the other hand, you know, that the the acquiring um party, whoever it is, if it's another organization or a venture capital company uh, whoever it might be, you would want you would think that they would want to make sure that in order to uh, ensure success, that they are keeping as many of the people, especially the management people, in place. So that's a that's a positive, I think, that uh, to you know to make to hopefully make that happen. One thing that I've noticed is that as farmers get bigger, so the dealerships get bigger as well. So how many conversations have you had with guys where they're looking at their their 25-store operation and saying, you know what, we could probably trim this down to 15 and still have still be as effective as far as our coverage goes with our customer base as we have when we have our 25. Yeah, I don't think there's any I don't think there's any question that when you when you make an acquisition and particularly in the merger situation um, that we saw, you know, back in the early the, the early 2000s and, and early uh, 2010 and on. That was a that we saw that a lot. You know, you've got you've got dealerships have merged and consolidated, and then somebody comes in and acquires the merges with that organization, and now all of a sudden you've got ten dealership locations. And when you look at the territory and the map, you could probably pare that ten down to seven or maybe six. So I think that's we're going to see more of that, and I think these dealerships have got to they've got to they've got to do that because if you're going to be successful. And profitable, you've got to get be ready for the next downturn, and that'll happen again, as I said earlier, because of weather, or crop prices, or whatever it might be. So, um, you know, the, no question about it. The, the dealerships that acquire um, these locations, they're going to have to take a look at the map and see where it makes sense to. Have. And you know, it may be that they may not have to do away with as do, do away with as many locations. They may have the locations in the wrong spot. So those are tough decisions, obviously, because in certain certain communities, um, you know, what do you do with a dealership building um, that may not be in the right spot? And is that, you know, once the dealership moves out, the equipment dealership moves out, is there any use for that building? So those are tough decisions that will have to be made, um, but we're, we're going to see a lot of that, I think. No question. Well, what the other thing I was going to say is I, I think the other thing is you, you mentioned the large you know the large producers that's driving an awful lot of that i think and i think we're going to see more and more of that um i think you know the other thing that's happening is as dealers 
become older and and drive some of this um, that they're they're getting out of the business and see an opportunity to sell their their operation. The same thing's happening at the at the on the farm, and so you've got Absolutely. you know a lot of people who don't farm anymore, and they've got heirs that don't live in the rural community where their 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 parents or grandparents' farms were, but they don't want to sell the land. So you know the and that you can you can probably speak to this a lot better than I can, but you got a lot of uh, producers and farmers out there that um, are farming an awful lot of land, and in the in a lot of it is is rent. Um, they're renting the land from from owners who live somewhere else and in, mm-hmm. in a urban setting somewhere. So I think I think that's driving a lot of the consolidation too. Is you've got these farmers that are getting bigger and bigger for different reasons, and I think the other thing that we're going to start to see happening. And we're seeing some of it, and maybe you can speak to this too. Is that you've got? I think the food companies um, and, and are starting to think about um, sustainability and the environment, and they want you know the consumers and the food brokers and the grocery stores. Uh, they want to know they want to know where that food was grown and what sustainable actions were taking place during the growing of those crops or the Melting of those cows, or whatever the the agricultural product might be. So I think we're going to start to see food companies d- going directly to producers, especially these large producers, and having conversations with them about what are you doing from a sustainability standpoint with your operation, and can we verify what you're doing so that we can pass that information along to uh, our <clears throat> customers, who are the brokers and the grocery stores, and and ultimately to the consumer. So I think all of those kinds of things, as we, as a, as the agricultural uh, landscape changes, is going to drive more and more larger farmers and ultimately more and more larger dealers. We're seeing that out here. We we have a lot of larger, um, a lot of, a lot of larger organic growers out here growing organic wheat and organic alfalfa to feed to the organic dairy, you know, and those kind of things. Where they are, you're seeing more corporations you know, like Chipotle and those kind of companies that are coming in saying, Hey, we'll, we'll buy your beef from you or buy whatever from you, but these are the standards we want you to follow. Um, you, right. you start to see that kind of stuff pop up all over the place. So that is driving a lot of, a lot of behaviors in, um, in the way guys farm now. It's, it's, it is more of a, yeah. And I, and I think, yeah, I think, I mean, I think that there are going to be, I mean, if you're going to go into that type of farming and you're going to meet the demands of the, um, of the food companies, then you're going to have to have a different operation than you've had in the past. And so I think, again, that's going to drive some producers out of business or they're going to say, Hey, I'm not, you know, I don't want to, I'm not going to do that. The the upside to the producer that does that is um, he's going, you know, there are situations out there where I'm aware of food companies that have said to that producer, if you do these practices, I'll enter into a contract with you to pay you X number of dollars per bushel or per gallon of milk or whatever it might be. And it not it is, and that price may not be necessarily tied to the market price. It right. may be more tied to what that producer or that food company is willing to pay. So uh, the, the downside for the, for the producer is um, he's going to have some added expense and, and have to change his operation in, in order to meet the requirements of the food uh, food company but the upside is ultimately he may end up with a more secure 
market for whatever the product he's selling. But it is definitely going to, I believe, it's definitely going to change the landscape of agriculture, and which will mean it'll change the landscape for dealers as well. Yeah, one last thing here, we'll, we'll close her down, but the uh, the technician thing is, is getting to be a bigger and bigger issue. And I remember when working at the association, we had uh, partnered up with the OSU Okamogie to, as far as a technician school yep. goes, and we'd get guys to sponsor students and send them down there and, and do all that. So in your travels, people you talk with, how much harder is it getting to find technicians uh, compared to what it was when you were the CEO of the Southwestern Association? I don't think, unfortunately, Casey, I don't think it's a lot different uh, than it was when, you know, 10 years ago when we started our relationship with the uh, Oklahoma State University Institute of Technology in Okmulgee, Oklahoma. And, and what a nice partnership that's been. Uh, that school in Okmulgee, which is about 30 miles south of uh, Tulsa, I think they've got something like 35 different vocations um, that um, for young people to go to school, get training, um, and everybody that comes out of there, all those programs are partnered with um, an industry or a dealer organization or a manufacturer, and everybody comes out of that school with a job. Um, so it's, it works. Unfortunately, and we still struggle in talking to the folks at the association, we, strips, we still struggle getting dealers to support those programs. And the way that works is somebody in the dealership organization has got to be talking to the high schools and the um, counselors and the VOAG instructors and the shop teacher and the people in the high schools about who are the potential uh, people, um, young students, that we can get into these training programs and then hire them. And, um, you know, one of my, you know, you've heard me on this soapbox before, but one of my big complaints about our education system, particularly at the high school level in this country, is everybody at the, the you know, the counselors, I shouldn't say everybody, that's a too broad a statement, but a lot of people who are school counselors and advisors in high schools think every young person's got to go to college to give you a four-year degree. And for many of those people, they come out of college and they don't can't find a job. And they're saddled with a lot of debt, um, college debt. Um, so there are opportunities, and it's it's not restricted just to agriculture and technicians. I mean, think about everybody that works on a. I mean, everybody that comes to my house for the most part that works on air conditioners and and plumbing and heating and electricity. Um, there's a lot of guys that are looking to me like they're getting ready to retire. So there are opportunities out there in these kinds of jobs that good pay and good jobs um, available. But a couple of things have got to happen. One is at the basic level at the at the high schools, you know, there needs to be more of, of an attitude that not everybody has to go to college and there are good jobs in these in these in the service industry and, and technicians and those kinds of jobs. And then the second thing that has to happen, which I'm surprised hasn't happened uh, quicker than it has, is the dealers um, dealer organizations, um, and maybe this will be a byproduct of, of the consolidation we were just talking about as these dealerships get larger. Maybe they have the wherewithal and the financial capability to get more involved, but dealerships have to do a better job of being engaged in their communities and in their trade territory with with the high schools and the, and, and the tech schools and schools like OSUIT 
to make sure that they know who the potential uh, students are that they could hire. And then get those get those young people into the dealerships and explain what the opportunities are and how it works and and then send them to schools and and be more engaged and rec- really start to recruit. And I still fear that a lot of dealerships are not paying as much attention to that as they should um, because there's a need out there. Almost every dealer I I talk to today and that I used to talk to when I was at the association, they will admit to you that they've got openings for technicians. Um, And, um, you know, everybody wrings their hands and, oh, how how are we going to do it? Well, you've got to have a plan and you've got to have a, I think, a recruitment department that's out there talking this story almost all the time and bringing young people into your dealership and explaining to them that this business and this industry is not, um, you're not a grease monkey anymore. You're working, as you said earlier, you're working with the computer and, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of these guys ought to be wearing lab coats right. uh, when they're working on the machine. <clears throat> so it's, it's, it's a different, it's a different world than it, it used to be. And I think a lot of people don't understand that or, and are not educated about it. And so they don't look at our industry as an opportunity that it really is. One thing I think that goes completely unnoticed when, when some of these kids in high school are looking at this master technicians make six figure salaries. It's not, like you said, it's not just a guy out there turning wrenches anymore. It's, it's a very well paid, very needed part of, of this business. And like you said, being active, recruiting, those kind of things has to be a priority in the dealership. Yeah, I, I can't I can't say that enough. That was a message that we preached at almost every dealer meeting we had. And uh, But I can tell you we only had and only have a handful of dealers. Now, I know there are dealers that are doing um, recruitment and send students to other schools than the ones that the associations were involved in. But um, I also know that there are an awful lot of dealerships that aren't paying close attention to this whole issue. And um, that was something that we really worked hard at at the association. I was just talking to the uh, last fall to the guys at OSUIT, and and they said the same thing. They, they've got room in their program for more students than um, there, you know, there are empty seats in their classes, I guess is what I'd say, which is a real shame because that's a great two-year program. Um, and most of the programs that are training technicians are good programs, um, and I think they've got more room and more capacity than than uh, than they do students, which is a crying shame. So I, at some point, it's got to that the story has got to be told. I see articles from time to time in major publications about the need for technicians and training and the kinds of salaries, but. I just feel like that, you know, there's a lot of factors here and why it doesn't, why the word doesn't get out. But mm-hmm. I think, again, one of the major uh, factors in uh, holding us back on this issue is a lot of people in the, at the high school level don't, don't understand. Maybe that's the focus we ought to take, but they just don't understand the opportunities that are available in agriculture. Especially from the, at the dealership level where parts and service is such a major part of the profitability of the business. And that the no question securing yeah. that part of it, you think would be just over the top. You know, we got to make sure yeah, that we you, have. You and, both, yeah, you and I both know that the success of a dealership 
it really depends on the on the success in the shop um, service and parts and service and the ability to take care of the customer and provide them uh, with the service that they need is critical to the success of the dealership and people don't come the farmer and the consumer doesn't they don't come back if they don't get good service like going to the restaurant if you don't have a good meal you're probably not going to go back to that restaurant if you don't get good service when you buy a piece of equipment that costs you hundreds of thousands of dollars you're probably not going to go back to that dealership so yeah it's critical this this whole issue yeah yeah all right jeff well i think we've covered it here man so before we close it down do you have any final words you want to throw out to to the public here no, I don't think so. I think we covered it. I, I, you know, I, again, what I would say is that I'm high on, I'm, I'm still high on agriculture. I think the farm equipment business and dealership business, I was in it for 40 years. I loved it. I made so many friends. And I, one of the things I tell people uh, about what I did for a living is I said I represented farm equipment dealers. And if you're a farm equipment dealer, for the most part, um, you, you've got to be a decent person and your employees have to be good people uh, or you're not going to do business with uh, you're not going to do business very long with farmers and producers because those folks are down to earth people and and they want to do business with people that are like them so i i enjoyed my career and uh, still love tracking it and following what's going on in agriculture and i really enjoyed talking to you today and kind of catching up with you a little bit uh, enjoyed the time we worked together and uh, i know you're doing well at your dealership and in your role there Doing, doing, doing the uh, used equipment uh, piece. So good luck to you, Casey, and thanks for the time today. I appreciate that, Jeff. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. I'd like to thank Jeff for being the guest on this episode. Remember, if you'd like to continue any of these conversations, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Moving Iron LLC, or you can find me on LinkedIn. You can also send me an email at Moving Iron Podcast at movingironpodcast.com. Moving Iron LLC has a website you can visit, movingironllc.com. Here you can find information for the 2018 Moving Iron Summit in Las Vegas, past and current episodes of Moving Iron Podcast, and articles from Moving Iron Blog. Throughout the year, there'll be guest bloggers writing on various topics from their point of view. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe at your favorite podcasting platform. And if you shop Amazon, please use the Amazon click-through at movingironllc.com. It won't cost you anything, and you'll still have the same experience you're accustomed to while supporting the podcast. You can find this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and SoundCloud. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour, out.